speaker um, and uh, Debbie B is going to in introduce our speaker this evening. Hi, my name is Debbie and I'm a very grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. So I've uh, sat in the rooms of Al-Anon with Barb for the last few years and um, watching her walk through this journey of recovery has inspired me. So I'm very grateful to be able to introduce Barb W. to you tonight. Can you hear me? I'm very prepared, like a really good Al-Anon. So, Hold on one second while I get myself set up here. <clears throat> Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, where's my prayer? Okay, this is perfect. Okay, my prayer is not here, but um, a sponsor that I used to work with, uh, she encouraged me to develop a prayer. And I really like the prayer from the big book of AA. And so if you know that prayer, I'd love it if you would say it with me. God. Perfect. So I'm really grateful to be up here because I feel honored that somebody sees something in me that I can share with you. When I first came into the rooms of Al-Anon, my voice would always shake and it would always catch in my throat and I would turn bright red. Uh, I was I was terrified to speak, so I feel like this is the next level for me <laughs> to like learn how to be authentic in front of all of you. So the joy that I really have comes from having had a spiritual awakening and Spiritual awakening to me means that I've been affected in my soul. And I believe in the 12 steps. And so I'm going to attempt to carry the message of having had a spiritual awakening with you. So I'd like to give you a little bit of background about me. And... Uh, try to follow the suggestions of my sponsor, and she said, try to keep that short. <laughs> but it, I don't know, it's just gonna be what it will be. So I had two parents uh, who were struggling when I was growing up, and when, um, you know, when I worked the fourth step, I realized that I look back at my childhood and I see the negative things. I don't remember a lot of the positive things. and. Uh, 
Today, I know that there are more positive things, but I'm going to share the negative things with you. So I had two parents who were struggling to be together, and I have two older brothers. And I remember that my dad wanted to move to Japan, and my mom followed him. And three of us got left behind in an institute that was taking care of us. And I was four years old. And the reason that I remember that is that I was separated from my mom and uh, from my brothers. We were in an institute. The boys were on one side, and the girls were on another. And I was with some girls who were emotionally abusive to me. They bullied me, and I have no idea why. Um, knowing what I know now about what it feels like to be loved by an Al-Anon fellowship, I think that that planted something in the makeup of who I was, that I got scared at a very young age that I was not going to be taken care of. And I was alone there for six months and didn't even really see my brothers very much. And then we went to Japan. And while we were in Japan, my mother left my dad and decided to move to Philadelphia. And she moved into a commune because she didn't feel like she could support three kids on her own. And in a commune, she'd have a lot of help. So. Uh, we went and joined her in this commune, but what happened was there were, we lived in a house that would have 12 bedrooms, so there were a lot of people coming and going. And what it allowed my mom to do was to take off and work in order to try to contribute money to the house. And what, it hap what happened was I grew up with multiple caregivers and no sense of a connection to anything and anyone. Uh, I had a lot of fear. We lived in the ghetto of Philadelphia. I was the only white girl in my class for three years, and I was shipped from one school to another because I was white. I was stabbed because I was white. My brother was raped in front of me because he was white and he was disabled. Um, I was afraid, and I didn't feel like there was a protective family around me, taking care of me. And the reason that I tell you that is not for you to feel sorry for me, but I feel like it created who I am today. At the same time uh, that we were in this commune, some of the other negative things that I remember are that my mom was exper uh, experimenting with open relationships and um, she got into a relationship with a pedophile. And uh, the pedophile had a heyday in these communes, and I was one of the, one of the uh, playthings for him. Because I did not have a connection to any adult in my life, I looked to my oldest brother. And I wanted him to love me, because that's what we do. In this world, if we feel love, and belonging, then we're safe. So I looked to my older brother to feel safe, and what he wanted to do was to explore sexuality as well. So the majority of my childhood was really dysfunctional, and I'm a little embarrassed that I'm telling all of you about it, <laughs> and you don't know me, um, but it really impacted uh, setting me up 
for um, not feeling very good about myself. And when I come into the rooms of the EVI speaker meeting and I listen to AA speak, I I can relate to the story of taking a drink to feel better. I've never had a problem with alcohol, but I've never felt good about who I am. And maybe when you walked in here and you see me looking good, because I'm dressed nice for you. Maybe you compared your insides to my outsides the way I did when I walked into these rooms. But uh, I want you to know that I, I came into the Al-Anon rooms a broken soul. And I'm not a broken soul anymore, actually. And I hope to share with you the story of my recovery. Uh, so I met uh, the alcoholic in my life when I was 16, and uh, he was the local drug dealer, and uh, I was very attracted to him because he had a lot of power, and he had boys all around him wanting to do whatever he said. And my mom had chosen to marry the pedophile who was continuing to assault young women with her knowledge. And I wanted out, and I wanted somebody who would protect me. So three days after I met the local drug dealer, I moved in with him, and I was 16 years old. And at first, he was just smoking pot and drinking, um, and pretty soon it turned into cocaine and shooting up cocaine and pornography and eviction and homelessness. And I was a senior in high school. Uh, I continued to go to school despite living on the streets with him. And uh, I actually uh, was the lead in the senior class play. I was voted a uh, class artist and uh, I got straight A's, but I was on the streets, and people knew that about me, and they put me into a foster home. So um, the man that I uh, moved in with to protect me, he started beating me up. Uh, he would get into a drunken rage, and he would... Uh, kick the dog in front of me and uh, pour soda on me, and then it would escalate to throwing me downstairs and cracking my face open and dragging me by the hair. And I, I remember leaving and getting out halfway between his house and my home and thinking I had nowhere to go, right? So... I would go back, and he would be really sorry, and there would be this honeymoon stage, and it would be better for a while, and then it would happen again. And again, as those of you who may have been in domestically violent relationships, you know there's a cycle. 
So, needless to say, when my stepfather came over to demand that I move home because I was with an unsafe character, uh, and my boyfriend put a gun to my stepfather's head and said, get the fuck out or I will kill you, I felt safe, right? Probably for the first time in my life. But this man who was protecting me was also saying things to me like I couldn't do any better than him and that I'm trash. And so staying with him was a way of trying to survive um, because I didn't know where else to go. And I did get into counseling, and when I was in counseling, the counselor suggested that I go to Al-Anon. And I did. And I don't have much of a recollection of Al-Anon in those years, actually. Uh, I did hear the word God, and I thought you guys were a cult that was going to try and make me believe in the Bible because the capital H in he and the words thou, and I didn't believe in the Bible, and I didn't believe in God because my life sucked. And if there was a God, why would he let all of those things happen? But I did hear some beautiful things in that room, and I'm... I love Al-Anon literature, so I'm just going to read to you something that I heard in the rooms that kind of cracked the door that first day, or first um, few times that I went to Al-Anon, and it was that the 12 steps and 12 traditions, although spiritually oriented, are not based on any specific religious discipline. They embrace philosophies of many faiths and religions, as well as non-religious ethical, and moral thought. And the designation God does not refer to a particular being, a force, or a concept, but only to God as each of us understands that term. Anyone can find in this program a serene, fulfilling way of life if they can believe in any power greater than themselves. So what I heard in the rooms was that I could figure out what worked for me. And that was the little seed that was planted in my brain. I did go back to the alcoholic in my life, and I was actually with him off and on for seven and a half years. I uh, tried to get away many times, and he would find me. Um, Today, I, you know, preparing to speak in front of all of you has been really powerful for me because I've wanted to carry the message of having had a spiritual awakening, and I've been trying to define what higher power is for me. And as I tell my story, and I've written this story over and over and over again, I'm thinking, and I've heard this said in the rooms, uh, you're making this your higher power, you're making that your higher power. And I'm thinking, what does that mean? And today I understand that higher power is whatever I allow to guide my choices. 
And when I was younger, sexuality guided my choices. I had learned to get attention by having sex with people and um, trying to make my alcoholic uh, happy with sexuality. Well, after seven and a half years of trying to do everything and nothing getting better, I finally decided to have a baby. And maybe if I had a baby, I would feel better. A really bad reason, right? To have a baby. The baby would love me, I will love it, I'll feel whole because somebody loves me. I didn't get it that how dysfunctional that was. So the baby became my new higher power and I made decisions based on the baby. And that's great because I would not want a child to go through what I went through. So I was willing to make hard decisions to leave my alcoholic in order to keep the baby safe when I couldn't leave the alcoholic to keep myself safe. So uh, there was a period of time where the alcoholic in my life was locked up on a DUI and he was locked up for two weeks and I put the baby into a car and drove across the country and I didn't have any idea where I was going. And I ended up in Boulder, Colorado. And I was there for about a year and a half when I discovered that he had found me. And um, he threatened to come get me. So I packed up my bags and got into the car with my two-year-old at this point and drove up to Eugene, Oregon. And I knew better how to stay safe from the alcoholic. It was, I needed to cut myself off completely from everybody who was back home, because that's how he found me. He intercepted the mail, and my friends told him. And so I isolated and in order to stay safe. So uh, higher power works in mysterious ways. I really wanted to um, stay on welfare. I was on welfare on, at that time. And one of the things that welfare requires you to do is make three job contacts and get signatures that you're trying to get a job in order to continue collecting welfare. So I did that. I applied for jobs that I didn't think I would get but would be really cool if I got them. But I didn't really think I was gonna get them because I really wanted to keep being a mom to my son. Well, I got hired. <laughs> and um, the job that I got hired for was working with teenage boys in a drug and alcohol treatment center. Uh, so, the beautiful part of that is that part of working there was that I had to go to AA meetings. And so again, I was introduced to the 12 steps. And I am such a, I have such a need to fit in that I would go to those AA meetings and they would go around the room and say, hi, my name is blah, blah, blah. And I would say, hi, my name is Barb and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> because I wanted to fit in. But I felt like I didn't belong. 
I still felt like I didn't belong, but there was something in 12 steps that started calling to me. And I don't know what it was, but I wanted to belong. I see in your fellowship this beautiful connection and family, and I want that. I didn't know how to get it. So I started exploring 12-step programs, and somewhere along the line, uh, my mom's mom died, my grandmother, and I went back to uh, her funeral. And when I was going through her home in the closets, uh, I was told I could take anything that I wanted, and in the closets I found an album that she had put together of all of our ancestors that she had researched. And I, it was the first time I had ever seen it. I had cut myself off from my family. I was so ashamed of my mom and, and my dad who stayed in Japan when we moved there when I was four years old. I didn't want anything to do with a family that didn't want me. So when I found this album in the closet, and I started reading about my ancestors, I noticed this sense of pride start to well up in me that maybe I could be connected to something that I could be proud of. And I'm kind of an intelligent person. I had graduated college, and I started to realize that I had this desire to be connected, and that when we're connected, it feeds something really deep in my soul. And the reason that I had a hole in my soul was because I did not feel connected to anything. And so that album was really powerful for me, but I also realized that I needed to find some place where I belonged. And I started going to Al-Anon again. So it was the second time that I was in Al-Anon, and uh, when I went to uh, this 12-step uh, detox uh, treatment center that I was working at, I thought it would be hypocritical for me to use. So I stopped drinking, and I stopped smoking pot, and I also stopped being with men. I went totally abstinent for five years because I thought I had an addiction to something, and I had no idea what it was, so I was just going to be abstinent from everything. <laughs> <clears throat> And so I tried all kinds of 12-step programs, CODA, Naranon, AA, um, and Al-Anon. And <clears throat> I didn't feel like I belonged in Al-Anon because they say, the only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. And I wasn't dating anybody and I had left my alcoholic, and I don't have alcoholism, so I felt like I did not belong. But there's something in the closing that when I would go into those meetings and I would hear it, and I would say the first six months that I went into the rooms of Al-Anon, every time I heard this, these words, I would just start sobbing. And I didn't know why, but it's this closing, and I'm reading it from the Al-Anon service manual. And it says, we aren't perfect. 
The welcome we give you may not show the warmth we have in our hearts for you. But after a while, you'll discover that though you may not like all of us, you'll love us in a very special way, the same way we already love you. So I really wanted to be loved, obviously. So that would really touch me, and it kept me coming back. And I signed up to lead meetings, and I signed up to do service, and I set up the chairs, and I would try to speak in meetings. And when I would speak in a group, any group, my voice would shake, and my words would catch just like they're doing now, but worse. And I was so embarrassed, and I would turn bright red, and I would know that you would see that I am not perfect. And I was ashamed of who I was, so it was really hard. But I knew that if I kept, what they say is if you keep opening your mouth, it will get better, right? And I wanted to believe that it would get better, so I kept coming back. I got a sponsor, I did a fourth step, and I heard that the disease of alcoholism is a family disease, and that maybe I had been impacted by the alcoholic in my life, even though I was not with him anymore. Well, I went to the rooms, uh, I, can't, I don't even know how many, how many years I went, but I actually saw, where did she go? Debbie, who introduced me. I saw Debbie in those rooms back then, and at that point in time, my son was probably four years old. Um, Wow, is my time up already? Whoa, okay. My timer just did a weird thing. Uh, so, I stopped going to Al-Anon. I was there for a while, and I, I really tried to work the steps. I probably got through my fourth step, and then I I felt like maybe I didn't have a problem. And um, <laughs> why is it so obvious to you guys? <laughs> uh, I got into a relationship with a man who uh, was working a program of recovery, and his program was really attractive to me. And I started to be attracted to recovery. And um, so I slept with him, because that's what I do. I'm attracted to you, I'm gonna sleep with you. Um, I also thought he would be a really good mentor for my son, and he was, and he helped to raise my son. But the problem was is that I still didn't love myself. And I, I heard in a Summerfest, 2015, I heard somebody say something that really struck a chord for me, and that is, is that my priority should be that I learn to love God first and myself second, and please don't put a relationship into my life until I learn in that order. And that's been my mantra. 
So years have passed, and needless to say, that relationship did not work out. And um, my son has grown up, and I did my best to parent him, but I'm a broken human being trying to raise a son with a lot of character defects. I would like to name some of my character defects. I have a fear of conflict. I go along to get along. I talk about you behind your back, and I build up my allies against you to make myself look better. I'm afraid to say what I think and what I feel. I actually don't know what I think or what I feel. I have no self-confidence, no self-confidence, no self-esteem. I want people to read my mind. If they don't, I go cry in a corner until they feel bad that I'm crying in a corner and come take care of me. Obviously, that's not a great way to raise a son, right? So I raised a son who, um, he hit adolescence and he started displaying behaviors that I had no idea how to handle. And uh, he had run-ins with the law, alcohol, pot, shoplifting. I would try to confront him, yet I didn't know how to confront him. And we would fight and he would run away, he would punch holes in the wall, and there'd be more and more distance in my relationship with him. So I'm, I'm very aware that I have a problem, and I don't know how to parent my son. And the most recent time that I came into the rooms of Al-Anon is because I hit a bottom. And it's kind of like a bottom, I think, that AAs hit. This was an emotional bottom for me around my son when he disclosed that he thought somebody had slipped meth into his drink and that he was terrified. And what I did was I tried to throw money at the problem and uh, buy him his way into college. I bought him a computer. I fixed his car. I got him clothes. I did everything I did to try to get him into treatment and then into college. And he didn't want any of it. And I was terrified. And... uh, One day at work, people were talking about a football player for the U of O Ducks, and they were uh, talking about how awful it was that he was a role model for all of these kids out in the community, and still he had, he was using and drinking. And in my mind, they were talking about my son, and they were putting down my son, and I just started crying, and I couldn't stop because here's somebody that I love from the bottom of my heart, and I think he has the disease, and there's nothing that I can do to stop it. And you know, there's the three C's, which say you didn't cause it, and you can't control it, and you can't cure it. Well, I felt like I had contributed to it because I was broken, and I didn't know what to do. And so I came into the rooms of Al-Anon a third time, And uh, I took a medical leave of absence. I admitted that I was having a nervous breakdown, that I could not stop crying. And I totally and completely gave myself over to the program. 
I made a commitment to do 30 meetings in 30 days, and I bought literature, and um, I started working the steps, and I got a sponsor. And um, I had to believe in a power greater than myself. And uh, I still didn't really believe in a power greater than myself. So one of the things that I needed to do was to believe in Al-Anon. And I made Al-Anon my higher power. And I believed that if I totally and completely gave myself to this program, that maybe something could be better. And so I did. I did every suggestion that I was given. They said, write a gratitude list for 30 days. I did it. Take my own inventory when I journal at night. I did it. Make a God box. I did it. Lead meetings, do service work. I did it. And I had to figure out uh, what a higher power was for me. And that began the next two years of the most incredible journey of my life because today I define a higher power a higher power as a loving protective god that is always available to me no matter what I'm going through I am not alone and uh I just feel incredibly fortunate. And uh, one of the ways that my sponsor helped me to come to see that there is a higher power in my life was she asked me to look back on my childhood and see whether there was evidence of a higher power in my life. And I remembered when I put the baby in the car and packed up to go across the country, uh, it was because his dad had been locked up for two weeks. And it happened two days before I was to get my diploma from the college where I was graduating from. The timing is a miracle. I was able to walk down the aisle with the baby in my hand, with pride, and receive a diploma, and then put the baby in the car and drive across the country without any fear because my alcoholic was somewhere where he could not touch me. So that was evidence of a higher power in my life. On my way to work one day, I heard a story on the radio that resonated with my childhood. And that was uh, a woman who had survived way worse abuse than I had survived. And yet she had this incredible story and belief in her abilities and her resilience. And it made me think, what I hear in the rooms is that it's about perspective. All of my life I had been looking back at all the things that were wrong, what if I look back at the things that were right? Could I take that perspective shift? Did I have the ability to start being grateful for things? So uh, that summer, while I was working with the sponsor, uh, I had a brush with death. And it furthered my belief in a higher power. I was mountain biking. 
and uh, I was going with a bunch of police officers who were really good at mountain biking, and we were going down the 26-mile trail from Clearwater Lake down the Mackenzie Trail, and uh, I'm not a very good mountain biker, and I was terrified. But the people pleaser in me didn't want them to know that I was terrified. And they said, who's going to be the leader? We've never done this before. And I said, okay, I will. But in my head, I knew I was terrified. And I went down that trail, and I got up over a hill, and I looked down one place, and I saw it was too steep for me, and my legs trembled and they started coming up behind me and I said I gotta go I gotta go they're gonna think I'm a wuss and I went and I went ass over tea kettle and I dislodged a bunch of boulders and the boulders this big started rolling over me and and one rolled over the top of my head and crack I heard the crack and I thought holy shit I'm dying. And then the boulder kept rolling. And I actually, it cracked my helmet, but it did not crack my head. So what is there about that to be grateful for? (laughs) The helmet, yes. But also what I learned was is that I had a little voice inside of me that told me, Barb, it doesn't matter what these people think. You don't feel safe, don't do it. And because I was working with a sponsor, I learned that that was my higher power. That little voice that I had no connection to for all of my life is right inside of me, and I have to learn to listen for it. So there's one other story, and I think I don't have a lot of time left. How am I doing on time? I have 10 minutes. Great. Okay. I'd like to say that just because I got into the rooms of Al-Anon, and I started working the steps, and I started believing in a power greater than myself, it doesn't mean that I'm suddenly healed and all better. I'm still having problems with my son. I'm still displaying my character defects. I'm doing things like calling him all the time and checking up on him and sneaking into his house to make sure that he's there. Um, He was doing things that was sending signals to me that I'm still sick, things like jumping out of the car while I'm trying to talk to him even though we're going 20 miles an hour. Uh, Things like I'm knocking on his door and he's locking the door instead of opening it. (laughs) So what I heard in these rooms is that I need to stop going to the hardware store for bread. And what I was still doing was I was still going to my son to fill me up. And there are people in these rooms that have heard me cry about Thanksgiving and Christmas, where I would prepare a whole meal for my son, and he said he would show up, and then he wouldn't show up, and I would feel devastated. 
And, uh, you know, I thought I was unlovable because I was basing my love on my son and whether I thought he loved me. And what I know today is that I need to base my worth on whether God loves me. And today, I know that God loves me. And so there's more evidence of that, and I'd like to tell you another story. And that is is that uh, my son, who is continuing to have problems calling me to bail him out of jail, um, among other things, people told me that I should make an altar and put my son into God's hands. And I thought back, I was like, okay, I'll make an altar, and how do I want to make an altar? And I went to college for art, so I thought, I'm going to make a sculpture of two big hands, because there was this card that somebody had given me in Colorado, and it's a picture, and you probably won't be able to see it, but it's this. And it's two big hands, and they're holding a woman who's holding a baby. And this picture stood out to me. And uh, I had seen that picture when I was in Boulder, Colorado, and it was kind of the beginning of my formation of what a higher power meant for me. So I wanted to make this altar, and I would put a picture of my son in the hands of God. That's what I was counseled to do. So I went to my Saturday first step meeting, which is my home group at this point. And on the way home, there's a clay store. I'm going to buy some clay, and I'm going to make the hands. But all morning long, I've been looking for this picture because I wanted to use it as a model, and I couldn't find it. And I'm desperately looking for it. And so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to have to make it out of memory. And I stop at the clay store. And then I stop at the Saturday market to get some food. And as I'm walking back to my car, right in front of me is a three-foot by five-foot picture, this one, of the hands that I was about to sculpt. And I thought, if that is not evidence that there is a God in my life, then I don't know what is. So for me, that second step was a really hard one. But today I have a God book in which any time there's an instance like that, I write down the story so that I can go back when I'm having a hard time and remember that God is present in my life. And... I continued to work the steps. I did a fourth step with a new sponsor, and it became pretty clear that I had a resentment towards my mom. Now, I told you about my mom, who chose to marry a pedophile, knowing that he was a pedophile. And my mom uh, got dementia. And I'm the youngest of three kids, and I'm the only girl. And uh, she's always known that she was going to get dementia and not be able to remember things and because it runs in our family. And so she had asked me if I would be her caretaker when that started to happen. And I'm a good 
caretaker? And I said yes, but I also am working a program of Al-Anon, and I want to forgive. I want to let go of my resentments, and I don't want to hold on to them. But you know what? Despite saying that I forgive, I started taking care of my mom. She, I, uh, her husband died in Florida, and I went out to pick him up, and I brought her back here to Eugene with me, and I found an assisted living facility for her. And she started to forget things and started to forget how to take care of herself and just started deteriorating. And I watched and uh, wanted to forgive her. But as I'm doing my fourth step with my sponsor, I'm noticing that I refuse to hug my mom. And I refuse to say I love you to her. And uh, I bring up the fact that she can't remember things. And I kind of rub it in her face. And she's oblivious to it, but I'm aware that I'm doing it. And so they say this thing about resentments, that it's the poison that I drink hoping that you will die. Uh, I work the steps with the sponsor, and I am aware that I have a resentment towards my mom, and I am working really hard to get rid of that resentment, and it's not going away. And she just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And I have humbly asked the God of my understanding, who I know loves me and believes in me and thinks I'm a worthy human being, to please help me forgive my mom. And I made a list of all people that I had harmed. And I'm trying really hard to take care of her, but I'm, I'm still resentful. And that's where God stepped in again. Because what God did, and this was just last October, was that uh, my mom stopped being able to take care of herself to the point of sitting in feces at the assisted living facility where she lived. And they were neglecting her. And every time I would show up, she, was, she smelled like a homeless person. She looked like a homeless person, and she stank. And it cracked something in my heart. Probably the way it would if I were to see any of you, you know? And uh, I made the decision to move my mom into my home because I could not stand the idea that she was being neglected. And I knew that she was dying and I knew that it was likely that she was going to die in my home. But what happened was is that I have been in the rooms of Al-Anon for six years now. And I have a family that loves me. And so I would go to meetings and I would share about how hard it was for me to be with my mom. And I would get guidance, and I would get support, and I would get love. And you carried me through taking care of my mom. And I got the greatest gift 
of being able to forgive her and say goodbye to her with absolute love in my heart for her. And I don't think that would have been possible without feeling the love that all of you have expressed to me, that I belong. I belong in these rooms. And you are my family. And I am a very grateful member of Eladon. So I think my time is up. Yeah. <laughs>